The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission, who remains deeply committed to the work of justice for the oppressed. To find out more about the work of IJM or to follow them on social, head to IJM.org. Well, this is The New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffoltz, and it is a joy to be with you today as we welcome our guest, Bethany Wilkinson. Bethany Bree Wilkinson has spent more than a decade exploring the intersections of community, racial justice, and social change. She is a writer, a leader, and a social entrepreneur. To that end, she joined the team in 2017 at Plywood People, which is a nonprofit in the Atlanta area that is leading a community of startups and doing really good work. She also leads a project, and this is what we're going to be talking about today, but she leads a project called The Diversity Gap, which is an initiative that is exploring equity-centered institutional change. Bethany writes of her work in The Diversity Gap. She said, I will be listening to the stories of people most impacted by diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. She says, I want to know what it will take to close the gap between our good intentions and the outcomes that we hope for. We're going to be talking about that gap today. Before we start, if you have not done so yet, could you please rate and review The New Activist in whatever podcast player you're using right now? It is just such an effective way to throw your support behind these conversations and allow others to hear uh, great wisdom and insight like we will hear from our guest today, Bethany Wilkinson. I did want to ask you, part of your bio, your online bio says, I'm a black woman who grew up in a small segregated town. As a kid, Friday night football games always reminded me of the racism in our community. And I just read that and was really curious about your town. Where did you grow up and what what was the fullness of your growing up experience like? Yeah, this is actually a really great question because my husband and I lived in have lived in Atlanta for the past 10 years or so. Um, But we recently moved back to a small town and I'm 25 minutes away from where I grew up. And so, wow. um, So that's been, it's been really interesting. I grew up in a small town. It's called Monticello, Georgia. And the last time I checked the statistics, I mean, maybe 3,000 people live in the town itself. And so my family, my dad, um, was in the Navy, military family, but he was from Georgia and so, or is from Georgia. So we settled. Um, in the small town because it was about an hour from my grandma and and my dad always wanted to farm and grow food and have his own animals and things like that. So a rural place is where we ended up. I moved there when I was five, so about 25 years ago. Went to school there and it's interesting because it's like on the one hand, I had a great upbringing. In retrospect, I love that I grew up kind of in the middle of what felt like nowhere in the creeks, climbing trees, riding horses you know, staying outside constantly, um, knowing all of my neighbors, walking to the library, going to like the bank, we all knew everyone. And that was really wonderful. And yet there was this, I was also very aware of and sensitive to what I now know was a legacy of segregation and just racial separation. And so like, oh, the black people live on this side of town, the white people live on that side of town. We interact in these ways, but we don't interact in those ways. And 
interestingly, I was in the marching band and very passionate about band and in our small Southern town, football was a big deal as well. And so what'd you play? What'd you, I have to, I have to visual. Oh yeah. I was, um, I played flute and piccolo and then I was the drum major for a couple of years. Um, okay. All that is very cool. All right. So we're, I'm, I have drum major in my head. So you're the drum major. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'm the drum major, um, which was so fun. Honestly, one of the highlights of my life. <laughs> I love being <laughs> um, But yeah, we'd go to these football games and it was just, I mean, the football team was had, you know, was racially integrated. Every Technically everything was integrated, but over time, black people would just kind of sit on one side and white people would sit on the other. And I don't know if it's that way today. Um, I told my husband, like, we're close to Monticello. We got to go to the football games. <laughs> this fall, I love high school football. But yeah, that's that's a little bit of, of where I grew up. And even just driving through the town, that I guess it was about a week ago, I have a lot of gratitude um, for the community that raised me, even though it wasn't perfect. I mean, none of our communities are. As a kid, did you have, or even as a high schooler, did you have the language for this is segregated or did that language come later? And at the time that just felt like what life is like? Um, the language for it definitely came later, but I was sensitive to it because the other dynamic was that I was tracked into the gifted program when I was like seven or eight. And again, this is all in retrospect, right? But I, but being in high school and still in the gifted program, I was one of maybe two black students and one of three people of color, and my best friend who's Vietnamese American, who was, um, we were the only people of color in this program. And I'm like, how come there are no other black students in our entire school district, or from my grade who was who got tracked into this program, you know? And so, so it was something I was aware of, I had questions about. Um, when I was 15, I read Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria, which was huge, because that was like a pressing real life question that I had. Why do all the kids in this group sit together? And you know, where do I fit? Um, I also read a book called Makes Me Want to Holler by Nathan McCall, which is a memoir about growing up as a black man in the 70s and 80s in Virginia. And that book was really eye opening for me. So I started to try to make sense of it when I was probably 15 to 16 years old. But prior to that, it was just like, oh, man, I fit here, but I don't fit there. And then these communities they, like I said, they interact in some ways, but they don't in others. And it's all kind of strange. Wow. So what were you, I'm building a narrative here and I'm not trying, I'm curious, like what makes you a you? Because the punchline of this is you're this entrepreneur, you're working in and talking about the diversity gap podcast host. I mean, you're doing all of these things. And I just am fascinated, like how, how you're built. So as a young woman, were you uh, fairly outgoing? Were you quiet? Were you like the introspective kids that saw things that weren't as they should be? Like what, what's take us as much as you can, like inside, inside the high school brain of yours? Yeah. Wow. This is a really good question. <laughs> um, part of me wants to say, gosh, okay. I'll just say what I remember. I remember like I was definitely outgoing in a sense, right? Like I was the drum major. And for those of you who don't know, the drum major like conducts the band. And so like I was leading this band and I was obsessed with that and not just the conducting part, but like the community building part. Like I loved knowing everyone's name, knowing their families, knowing their stories and just being in their lives. I loved it. So I was very outgoing there. Um, and then I was very ambitious. So I like, I want to be top of my class. I want to be president of as many clubs as possible. I just felt really ambitious and like, I wanted to be excellent and the best at everything. 
at the same time, I wasn't really interested in being like being popular, but I did. If, but if I was going to be known, I wanted it to be for doing something awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not just because like, oh, I'm like, I'm cool or whatever. But at the same time, I, I mean, I grew up in this black family and I would say in my family context, I'm definitely the most introverted of my, my siblings. Um, maybe second to last in terms of introversion, but I'm definitely quieter and more introspected and introverted than a lot of my my family. And so in my family context, I I don't know, I spent a lot of time by myself, a lot of time writing, a lot of time reading. Um, and yeah, so I guess there were all of those pieces, like the introspection, the thoughtfulness, that's always been a part of my life. I have lots of journals um, back to when I was really young. And I just was always trying to make sense of the world around me. But at school, I was just trying to like kick ass and be awesome. <laughs> right, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's that's what you do in school. Yeah. Um, I do think being a drum major would be so cool. I can't imagine not only the community aspect, but what it's like to count in and the whole band comes in at the drop of your baton. I mean, is that cool? It was very, I mean, it was so fun. It was so fun. Yeah. 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 This is not the drum major show, but I am fascinated by drum majoring. So some other time we'll talk about that. Yeah. Do, do you remember growing up and this may be post high school later, deep into your life? I don't know. But do you remember the first time that you saw something that wasn't right with the world and decided to do something about it, decided to say something or intersect with it in some way? This one's like way early. I yeah. was in maybe, I was maybe 11. And I was in like this history class and I remember looking like we went through like a black history segment in our book textbook. And I remember thinking, this isn't the whole story. They didn't tell us enough. I have to do my project on the Harlem Renaissance. Yeah. Yeah. Stories. I remember feeling that. And then I remember being really intense about the importance of like, oh, there was more here. Like there's poetry and music and art, you know, like black history is this expansive, beautiful thing. It's so much more than a couple of paragraphs we get in this textbook. And so I remember feeling like this is a problem and I have to solve it. Yeah. So that's probably one of the earliest memories that I have of doing that. And then going to college, it kind of got more complicated. It's, it's a different, the story looked different, but when I was 11, that was a really profound, profound experience. Do you remember as school project when you were 11. Do you remember how the class uh, responded to that or the teacher responded to that? Um, I don't, I don't remember. I do remember. I just remember loving making it. <laughs> I remember cutting out the little like handwrite, rewriting the poems and cutting out the pictures and designing my trifold board. Like I remember loving the process of making it. Um, I don't remember how anyone responded. Yeah. And, and then you went on and you were starting to talk about in college, like how did, how did that begin to manifest itself as you grew older? Cause now we're in our, our listeners age, right? Like there, a lot of them are in college and I'm curious how that started, like what you started to see, what you started to do, how this activism in you started to percolate. Um, I would say I'm not, I'm not always inclined to go do something. I really do like to learn and sit and absorb for a while. So when I think of my college experience, I mean, like I shared, I grew up in this small town then I go to this private university where there are people from literally all over the world. And all of a sudden, it's not just, oh, we're all black, white, and Christian and Baptist. It was like, oh my goodness, there are other religions and there are other nationalities. And, and so that was pretty expansive. Just like, oh, the world is so much bigger than I thought coming from you know Monticello, Georgia. 
And that was interesting. And then I took my first flight ever to Chicago when I was 18 years old. Maybe I was 19. And it was to do this week-long like urban ministry training program. And that was the first time I ever heard anyone talk about racial identity and how race impacted the formation of cities and how race has been filtered or how our theology and sociology and history, how all of it gets filtered through this lens of race. And so that experience in Chicago for that week was incredibly eye-opening because I, for the first time in probably my life, I had this broader context to understand these questions that have been important to me for my whole life. Like, oh, there's a reason there's only a few paragraphs about black history in this textbook. (laughs) Like it didn't, that was an accident. That was on purpose. Um, There's a reason that black people live on this side of the tracks and white people live on that side of the tracks. There's a reason that some kids get access to gifted programs and some kids don't. And so that experience in Chicago opened up a whole new world. I went back to, I came back to Atlanta, um, ended up going back to Chicago for a summer And it set the trajectory of everything. I mean, I changed what I studied and I just really focused on like, okay, what is this race thing? And then what do I want to do about it? It's such an interesting reaction because it's the same reaction as the 11 year old you, right? It's like, there's clearly something in you that when something's wrong, some people just are very sad about that and wallow in that. And that's their prerogative and that's okay, right? There's a piece of that, but there seems to be a, a really strong action component to your moments of awareness, seeing something that's missing in a textbook, learning something on this trip to Chicago. Do you have any idea like how that is fostered or is that just is that just your genetics that, you, that you're just gonna go and like, cause I already knew before you said it that the end of the story was gonna be, and then I came back and got to work. Like, of course you got to work. How, how'd you get to work? Oh, wow. I have no idea. Yeah, <laughs> it may not be a good I question. I've never noticed this pattern before. I, <laughs> I don't know. I just, part of it is I'm really curious. Yeah. And then I, I'm just like, wow, we can do something about this. Like, you know, you're small, we can do something. So why not? Why not? Yeah. It dawns on me though, by knowing a bit of your story and hearing it is that you're also really entrepreneurial. So there's this, like, you seem to have found ideas that existed in thin air and brought them to fruition. What were your inklings of being entrepreneurial and how has that been fostered in your life? That makes me think of my parents actually. Um, my mom is and has always been an incredibly creative person. And so whether it was sewing or making jewelry or um, she was really into scrapbooking for a while, she was always making something and letting and like following her inspiration. Like, oh, I love this color palette. I'm going to go buy you know, 10 yards of fabric and I'm going to (laughs) make, I'm going to reupholster this and I'm making a dress and I'm taking the scraps to make a pillow. Like that's how she is. And she always cultivated that creative curiosity in me and in my siblings. And they, my parents always invested in that. Um, I'll also say that my dad has always affirmed my voice, my perspective, my independence. And he would also say, and just tell me like the best way to to do things is to work for yourself. Like the the autonomy you want, the creativity that you want to act on, like you got to work for yourself. Um, And you can, if you want to. And so they both really just encouraged that in me and in my siblings and really made me believe anything was possible if I was willing to work incredibly hard at it. That's awesome. I 
I really respect that and and them and it's interesting you see that in them. Have they been pretty supportive? Like what's their support looked like as you have carved this really unique path in your life? Mm. <laughs> I think when it started out, they were very hesitant, just like Bethany. That idea is not gonna pay your bills. <laughs> you are you are gonna graduate from college right, and have to right. figure out how to make this work. <laughs> But in the midst of that, they also saw me try things. And even if it didn't work out, they saw me recover (laughs) from those things that didn't work out. And so I think over time, as I was willing to take risks, their confidence that I would be okay, um, it also grew. But I think about like my first time traveling out of the country, I was maybe 20 years old. And um, they were, they did not want me to go Hmm. (laughs) for a variety of reasons. And, um, and I was like, listen, I'm going, (laughs) I'm moving. (laughs) This is what's happening. If you won't take me to the airport, I will find my way there. I'm going, I'm going to do this. And, and I did, and I came back and I was fine. And they're like, oh, well, we were wrong. (laughs) Um, So I think it's been a a learning curve for both of us. Yeah. In 2013, you co-founded Atlanta Harvest, which is such an interesting uh, organization. What was the hope? What was the mission of Atlanta Harvest? So Atlanta Harvest was a high tunnel hoop house farm in the city. Um, And for those who don't know, high tunnel hoop houses are just incredibly large greenhouse like structures. And the mission was, it was, our vision was to have it be like a place for economic development, job creation, um, that sort of thing. And so me and my friend Corbin, we, gosh, how did we even get there? We were in a house church together. He wanted to start a company. I was transitioning out of a job and I was getting into farming. That's what it was. I had this like, oh, I'm going to farm for the summer. (laughs) And I did. What do you mean you were getting into farming? Like you just were kind of like learning how to do it? Yes, pretty much. Did you just pluck it from thin air? Like, I think farming would be cool or what's... (laughs) That's a great question. Okay, so I grew up on a farm, but not vegetables. I grew up on... At some point, I guess I was maybe, I don't know, late middle school. My dad, we moved to 12 acres. We were in town on like a small plot, but then we moved a little bit out of town so my dad could have, you know, goats, cows, chickens, pigs, that sort of thing. Um, And then when I was... In college, I went to this community garden as part of a community building program I was in. And there was this little stake in the ground that said, pay attention to what works in the garden, because what works in the garden may one day work in the world. And that phrase, I mean, like, it's one of my kind of like my heart (laughs) mission statements, like what works in the garden may one day work in the world. And so I, after I, I interned at my church the summer, the year after I graduated, And then I got another internship working with a school gardening nonprofit in our city because I wanted to learn how to grow food. And that was what I was doing when Corbin was like, hey, I want to start a company. And I was like, okay, well, I can grow some tomatoes and pick weeds. Maybe (laughs) that's enough, right? We can can build a farm with that. And he went out and found $10,000 of seed funding to literally just help me help us pay our bills and to get started. And we went for it. Wow. How'd it go? (laughs) <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> yeah. Do you want me to skip that question? We can just go to the next thing you did. Well, I can. I mean, it went fine. I should say that it went fine. Like the, it's you know, we we did it. Um, and then after running it for about I don't know six to eight months, I was miserable, and I was like, I hate this. This isn't what I had in mind. Now I didn't know a lot about entrepreneurship at the time. Knowing now, 
if I'd known then what I know now, I would do it completely differently and it would probably be more sustainable. But at the time it wasn't because I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I think this is a really important lesson though, because people start things and they think that if they if something isn't working about it, or if for any reason they just the season is over and it's time for them to stop it, that they are somehow this like massive failure. And so they just don't they don't quit and they just keep going, even if the thing is a really good idea. Like it's still like the ideas of Atlanta Harvest is still really a good idea. And so how did you know? How do you know when it's time to move forward, even from a good idea? So I knew in that instance that it was, well, I'll say a couple of things. One is at the time, it did feel like I was a failure for leaving. Like it did feel that way. Um, I know now that they say your 20s are for experimenting with everything to figure out what you like. (laughs) And so I know in retrospect, oh, that was great that I tried that and it didn't work out. Um, But at the time, I felt pretty miserable and confused. Um, but ultimately, I I was just waking up every day and I and I hated what I was doing. <laughs> um, simply put, I was like, I didn't want to be there. I did not have the mental, emotional, spiritual capacity to lead my team the way they needed. And then Corbin was just, as my friend, was just such a a good partner in that he and that he was like, okay, you're not happy, and that's fine but you can't stay here and just keep being not happy. Like either you got to like figure it out and stay or you kind of got to move on, you know, because he was trying to grow the thing. And so through honest conversations with him and then through eventually being like, you know what? I don't know. I was maybe 24 at the time, almost 25. I was like, you know, my whole life isn't going to be defined by this. And so I moved on. I made a phone call to a friend who worked at a garden center. And I was like, hey, are you hiring? Because I need a job. And he said, yes. And so I left the farm and went to go work for this small, um, this small organic garden store. That's awesome. And it, it ran its course and it was helpful and then it's done. I just think that there's a huge amount of bravery that comes with stopping something. It's almost as brave as starting something in some cases. So I just think that's interesting that you knew when it was time to move forward. Um, to that end, you've continued to be entrepreneurial and I, I'd love to get to present day a bit because I want to keep, I feel like I'd, I'm walking too slow through your story and we're never going to get to what's happening now. So I would love to just skip ahead a bit and know like, what is the diversity gap? Well, there is one part of my story I should probably share before I unpack the good, the diversity gap. Is that okay? Please. Um, so it was 2014, 2015 and me and a good friend, we were both really involved at a church and Every, they were trying to make sense of, or a whole community was trying to make sense of like the racial problem, the issue of racism in America. And there weren't a lot of good or helpful outlets that people could experience in real time in order to understand the problem. And so we created this day-long workshop called Grace Dialogues. And I have to give a little look at Grace Dialogues before I get to the diversity gap because they're connected in terms of my story and experience. And so um, we did this thing, Grace Dialogues. It was like a day-long anti-racism training, mostly for churches, but also for nonprofits. And we would we saw over the course of three years, like hundreds of people go through this training. And even though I loved leading it, I realized that just because people have more information didn't mean they were actually changing anything in their lives. And I realized that as an organization or a church, like, going through a workshop doesn't redistribute power in your leadership team or in your organization. And so um, that just became a really big glaring problem for me. It's like, I don't see any point in teaching people about racism if they're not changing how they live and how they lead. 
And so I sat that project down because I was like, okay, that solved a problem, but not the problem that I want to solve. And um, at this point, I had started working for another organization called Plywood People. And I was seeing a similar problem there, I guess, like this gap between good intentions for diversity and organizational culture and the outcomes of those intentions. So on one hand, we have communities that are really passionate about race and justice and, you know, dismantling white supremacy. And yet their leadership teams and their staff and their social lives don't reflect that value. So that's one way I've seen the diversity gap show up. The other way is that for teams that are diversifying, um, the impact of being in those cultural environments on Black people, Indigenous people, people of color, the impact is often pretty can often be pretty negative, especially in really quote unquote professional settings. And so, the gap, as I saw it, was kind of twofold. Like one, okay, are we redistributing power in these institutions? And then two, are the people we are saying that we love and value like do they actually feel love, respected, and valued? <laughs> um, it's one thing to say Black Lives Matter, right? But it's another thing for the Black people on your team to feel like their lives matter. And that was another side of the gap. And so in working through things with Plywood, we decided to launch the podcast. And and that's what it is. It's been an exploration and research and lots of conversations. Man, I appreciate you rewinding a bit in that part of the story, because what you did with Grace Dialogues and Plywood is so uh, foundational for it. And I'm curious, like, as you've been walking through this, and as you've talked to so many organizations, so many people of really good intention, right? We're talking to the people that seem to be trying really hard, but there's still something missing. What do you find? Are there any common threads of things that are missing in organizations, for example, that are trying to be diverse, but just, it's just not happening? Is there a thing that's happening or is it a confluence of events? I think it's definitely a confluence of events. And and I've also noticed too that I'm I'm working with mostly startups and like startup teams. And I'm I'm finding that the culture of startup teams is a little bit different than those of more established organizations. Um but I would say a couple of the gaps that have been consistent, one of the biggest ones would have to be not is that people don't understand how white supremacy exists as like a cultural reality and how their organizational cultural values like intrinsically <laughs> and inherently affirm the dignity of one group of people while creating barriers for other groups of people. And that it's so deeply baked into the culture and standard of business operations. Like, oh, here's how we lead a team. Here's how we recruit a board. Here's how we raise money. Here's how we set up our hierarchy. Here, Like it is so baked into how we do everything, white supremacy as a culture that is, that we think start thinking, oh, we're going to diversify. And I put that in, in air quotes, we're going to diversify, but we're really asking people to assimilate into this cultural norm that if any of us abandoned this norm, abandon the norm, the organization might not even exist. And so it's really difficult. I'm, I'm even at a point where I'm like, is it possible for organizations to change in this way or, or not? Um, and so that's probably the biggest thing. Yeah, white supremacy culture is baked into so much. And and to dismantle it would oftentimes require dismantling of the very entity itself. Years ago on the show, we had Austin Channing Brown. It was just when um, when her book had just come out. And she said, you know, if there are not people of color in your organization in leadership, then there's really just no hope for the organization. She said it much better and eloquently and over the course of a book. But it was generally like that was what it was boiled down to. 
do you still feel like that holds true or is it really like can an organization where you where you when you come in and you start to survey all the leadership and all like let's say for example all the leadership is white like is there a chance of them becoming like closing the diversity cap or is it just like that's not going to happen I definitely agree with Austin. I mean, I almost agree with Austin. I agree with Austin on pretty much everything. Yeah, yeah. She's incredible. <laughs> All the things, Austin Channing Brown. Um, but in, to that point, I do agree that if there are um, Black people or other people of color um, who are, and I say Black people first because that's my experience and that's the group that I tend to, I'm always working to center. Yes, if you, if a Black person comes into a high enough, powerful position of leadership within the organization that will, if they are able to be in that position as themselves, <laughs> like not having to become like whatever, like their white peers or their male peers, if we're talking gender, um, if they're able to be in that role and lead from a place of authenticity, then yes, I think that that can go a long way. Actually here at Plywood, we recently hired um, a director of operations who is um, in terms of our organizational chart is on is like the same level of power or authority, I guess, as our executive director. And so the impact, I believe, over the next few years will be incredible for Plywood as a community because that of the representation at the very top. So I think that's huge. If, again, that person is set up in such a way that they can lead from a place of authenticity. That being said, if it comes to an all-white team or an all-white organization, it's not, I feel, it feels untrue to say, oh, things will never change. Um, but I will say that I don't think you have to diversify. This is a theory. Yeah. Let's check back with me in like a year. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But my current theory is that I think that all white or majority white communities or teams can still grow towards liberation, even if their team doesn't currently reflect diversity, representational diversity, because in much the same way that white supremacy is a cultural reality where there are values and ways of seeing and moving, I think that liberation also has a set of cultural values and they are things we can practice um, before our teams reflect the diversity that we're hoping for. But it's interesting because you're clearly in process and part of what was interesting about the diversity gap as an idea is you call it an emerging solution. And you really say like that you'll be listening to the stories of people and you're trying to find out what, what it is. It's almost like the diversity gap as it stands as your podcast, live event curriculum, maybe even a book, as you put it right, is a, is an experiment. And so I'm curious, like, where are you in the middle of the, the research process and what have you been learning in the midst of the research? Like, where are you as of, as of today? So as of today, I've technically concluded like the the research, the heavy qualitative research. My goal is to interview 100 people, um, both social entrepreneurs and leaders of color within these aspiring diverse organizations to learn more about their experiences. Um, and so I finished that part of it and now I'm working on the book. So I'm really having to organize all my thoughts and ideas. Um, but the biggest thing I think I've learned is that it's not necessarily a diversity problem. It's it's more of a racism and white supremacy problem. And if we keep aiming to have diverse organizations without learning how to name 
white supremacy and then embody a new way, then we will continue to perpetuate the gap. Because bringing Asian American people, Latinx people, Black people, Indigenous people into your team without reevaluating power and culture and voice and pretty much everything you do, it's just causing more harm for people. And it also doesn't hold us accountable to responding to the bigger picture issues that are happening in society. You can have a really diverse team and still be ill-equipped to adequately respond in the face of police brutality or affordable housing or whatever the other issue might be. And I would really hope that our institutions can learn how to become places where people are formed into being engaged citizens and making the world a better place, not just securing the future of the institution. And so getting at that white supremacy piece and then learning how to participate in efforts for liberation, um, I think that's huge. And I think that has to be the future of our work. Can you define white supremacy? Because we've had people talk about it on the show before, and it is the most pushback I've ever gotten to anything that I've aired on the show is people going like, I'm not a white supremacist. And then I try to explain like, well, maybe not as you've historically seen that as connected to like pictures of the Klan, but that's not what this guest was talking about. Can you define what you're talking about with when you say white supremacy? Yeah. When I'm talking about white supremacy, I guess I should go back and talk about what I mean when I say organizational culture, because that's what I, in my context, that's what I'm talking about. There is a famous author, Patrick Lencioni. He wrote a book called The Advantage, I think is the name of it. And he talks about how within an organization, there are values and values simply answer the question, how do we behave? Like, how do we behave? That's who we are. Um, And most organizations, churches, nonprofits, whatever you look at, they have a list of values like, oh, we value generosity, we value creativity, we value innovation, whatever it might be. And then there are habits and practices that go with those values. And so when I'm talking about white supremacy as a culture, I'm saying that there are cultural values that have been defined by a history of white dominance in our society And those values have practices and habits that maintain them. And so, and this isn't a new idea. I did not come up with this. There's a really great article. uh, Maybe I can send you the link um, so that you can post it. But it's all about like the cultural, these 13 cultural values of white supremacy cultures. There's, you know, sense of urgency is a cultural value. Progress is always bigger, better, more. Um, There's a concentration on power hoarding. There is a value for individualism. And so there are these values that have been defined by white culture and then reinforced and rewarded across the world over time. So when I'm talking about white supremacy, I'm not talking about, you know, the KKK, though they might be included. That's right. right. (laughs) Um, I'm talking about the ways white cultural habits and practices are determined as the norm, the best, the way things should be. And then the ways those values and habits are then rewarded. And so you don't have to be a white person to ascribe to the values of white supremacy culture. That's what's so interesting about this organizational culture diversity work. If we're saying, hey, we're going to diversify, we're often talking about asking non-white people to take on the values of that white supremacy culture, the culture where being white and the white ways of doing things is supreme so that they can belong, so that they can get paid, right? <laughs> so they can participate in what's happening. And so that's a little bit, that's a little bit of what I mean when I'm saying white supremacy. I'm talking about a culture of dominance and a set of practices, habits, behaviors, assumptions that we say, oh, this is what's normal. 
this is what's best. This is what we're going to reward in this environment. Yeah, we will post that. I feel like it was part of that. Uh, there was like a dismantling racism workbook, I think. Yep, that's that exactly I, it. I feel like that. I'll, we'll post that in the show notes so people can, can read more about that. I want to close our time actually asking you a question that you ask your guests. And it is one of my favorite parts of the show. Uh, one, you can tell if the guest had been thinking about it or not. Like the, the I just love the guest's response because it's a very personal question. The question you ask is when you look at the world of whatever the guest, you know, there to talk about, how do you see the diversity gap and how can we close it? And so I guess I'm curious in talking to you, like as you look at your world, you spend a lot of time educating us, studying us, being really open, giving us things that we can learn and grow and be better people with. But like, as you're looking at your world of podcasting and educating and just all around entrepreneuring, which is not a word, how are you seeing the diversity gap and how can we close it? Wow, I'm not prepared. Oh man, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> You're fine. Oh gosh, it's such an interesting time to be asking that question because I feel like there are a million diversity gaps just because of like the political season we're in and the prevalence of um, racial violence in our country um, in our communities. And so the diversity gap is is incredibly broad. Um, one way that I see it showing up that's been personally relevant to me lately has been a gap in, and this is like confession time, a gap in even my ability to maintain civic conversations with the people I love around these contentious, hyper-politicized oftentimes, even though maybe they shouldn't be, but they are. Um, having civil, maybe I said civic, but civil conversations with the people I love and being able to do that well and, and I'm not talking about, you know, on Instagram with the strangers. I'm literally talking about siblings, parents, spouses, mm -hmm. yes, right. um, friends, you know, like in my real life, do I have the mental, emotional, spiritual capacity to sit down with someone who sees it differently than me and, and stay in that conversation? As a Black woman who does this work professionally, I have a lot of boundaries around the kind of work I do related to race because I have to have them in order to be healthy. But those lines get blurred when it comes to the people I love most. And, and so I think a gap, one of the gaps I am experiencing is, again, in that ability to hold meaningful civil conversations with people that I love. And, and I think that if we are able, if all of us like at tape, dinner tables and lunch tables and boardroom tables, if all of us across the country could be better at that um, and be growing in our ability to talk. Not that I think conversation solves everything. I don't. But I think it it's incredibly important because at the end of the day, we are advocating for our ability to see the humanity of one another and being able to talk in a way that is dignifying and um and forward moving, I just think it's so important. It's so, so important. And so I think that's one thing we can all be working on in an effort to close some of the gaps that we see in the world. Well, my deepest thanks to Bethany and her research and her willingness to share her story. Keep up with her and the work that is ongoing over at thediversitygap.com. Really, thank you, Bethany, for being on the show today. Again, as a quick reminder, if you could rate and review the podcast, that would be so helpful. Just got a great, very kind review that said uh, it's from Jim. I think it's Jim Enshar. Sorry if I'm messing it up, Jim. 
Jim wrote, I'm hooked. This podcast is life-changing. I now have real plans to volunteer as a result of the two Latasha Morrison and Jamar Tisby podcasts. Jim, thank you. That is just the best compliment to know that you heard a podcast and you are going out and you are beginning or continuing your, your own activism journey. So thank you so much, Jim. Thank you all for your kind words about the show. Of course, the conversation that started here will continue over on social, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of them are New Activist Is, and our website, newactivist.is, and a massive thanks to our friend, Propaganda, who scored today's episode. All about prop, merch, coffee merch, everything can be found at prophiphop.com or on Twitter, prophiphop. Today's show was produced by Christina Gore, hosted, directed by me, and additional editing by Chad Michael Snavely. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Bethany Wilkinson, as well as my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. <laughs>